Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT New retirement advice from the government. Work longer. Will elections in Brazil give a boost to the flagging emerging markets? And how to make money from collecting antiquarian books and first editions? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form. With the help of my FT colleagues, Joe Cumbo. Hello. And James Pickford. Hello. And we're joined on the phone by Anna Stubnitska, an economist at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Hello. Barely a week goes by these days without more changes to the UK's pension system. Two years ago, we had the start of auto-enrolment, the process by which employees are automatically signed up to workplace pension schemes. Then came changes to the state pension age, the flat rate state pension, followed by the momentous changes announced in this year's budget. And just last week, the abolition of the so-called death tax on pensions left to heirs. And this week came more pension rhetoric. Steve Webb, the pensions minister, said that Britons must get used to working longer or face almost permanent crisis in the nation's finances and in the health service. His department has set a target to increase the average retirement age by around six months for each year that passes and seems particularly exercised by the numbers of people, especially in the public sector, who are retiring in their 50s. Mr Webb and others argue that working longer is a natural consequence of living longer and that pushing average retirement ages into the late 60s or even beyond is needed to compensate for the fact that more and more people are living into their 80s and 90s and requiring expensive healthcare. Joe Cumbo is here with a bit more detail. Joe, we should probably be clear straight away that what we're talking about here is uh, average retirement age. It's not actually uh, pension age as such. No. Firstly, the state pension age is the earliest age at which you can claim your state pension, which is currently 65 for men, with women's state pension age rising to 65 to equalise with men by 2018. So it depends on when you were born, what your uh, state pension age will be if you're a female. So you have the state pension age and then you have the retirement age, which is actually an indicator which measures the age at which older people are leaving the workforce. And this is an indicator used by the government. Today, the average retirement age for men is 64.7 years and for women, it's 63 years. 
Okay, so they're actually quite well aligned at the moment, but the state pension age is going up, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Over the next 10, 11 years or so, it's going to hit 67 by 2026. So there's going to be quite a lot of movement. If there is no increase in how much time people are spending in work, then that gap between the state pension age and retirement age will widen. Now, the government's pretty keen on older workers generally and persuading people to stay at work longer. What measures have they put in place so far to to encourage us to do that? Well, there's um, quite a lot uh, that could be done uh, to increase participation of older workers. And one of the key uh, measures that they took was three years ago when they abolished the default retirement age. Many of our listeners might remember that as soon as you hit 65, your boss could march you uh, out the door, but that was abolished three years ago. So that's opened the door for people to stay on longer if they wish. But the key problems that many people face in later life are that uh, perhaps their health doesn't allow them to stay in jobs which are manual um, and they can't keep up that manual work uh, for long. And also there's the retraining aspect as well too. So if you're moving in and out or taking time off, and you might find it very difficult to get back into a job if you've been doing the same sort of work for a long time. Earlier this year, the government um, appointed a business champion for older workers to spread a positive message about keeping older people in the workforce. And finally, I mean, you mentioned the sort of physical limits to how long people can carry on working, but there are also, of course, financial limits. Many people in the private sector uh, won't really be able to contemplate the the prospect of early retirement because they won't be able to afford it. But in the public sector, it's it's a sort of slightly different setup there. What what measures is the government taking to persuade public sector workers to carry on for longer? Right. Well, there is a big divide, as you um, said, between the public sector and the private sector. Nurses and doctors and teachers are, are still on schemes which are called gold standard final salary schemes where income is based on the final salary at retirement and that income will be index linked and will have spouses benefits. Many other people who are not in final salary schemes do not get uh, the certainty of a final salary pension. The problem has become as uh, people are living longer, these public sector pension schemes have become very, very, very expensive uh, for the government and for, for the employers who still run these schemes. So what the government has been trying to do is to put a cap on the benefits that are being paid out to public servants in some instances, or they're increasing the age at which they can begin to claim their pension from the workplace scheme. So they're actually trying to tackle the costs of public uh, sector pensions. Thanks very much, Joe. Still to come on the show, making money from collecting vintage books and rare first editions. First, though, let's look again at emerging markets. These fast-growing economies produced great returns for investors for much of the noughties, but have underperformed the developed markets in more recent years. There's been a slowdown in China's growth rate, more questions are being asked of Russia's political leadership, and the end of quantitative easing in the United States has caused problems for many other emerging markets. But on the bright side, India has been one of the best-performing major stock indices this year because of investor optimism about the country's new Prime Minister. He has pledged to boost investment and cut corruption and bureaucracy. Could the same now be about to happen in Brazil? Latin America's largest country was an investor favourite under its previous president, but seems to have lost its way under his successor Dilma Rousseff.
widespread social unrest ahead of this year's World Cup, demonstrated that for all its economic progress, Brazil remains a deeply unequal country with a large and angry underclass. In last weekend's election, Mrs Rousseff did not win enough votes to secure outright re-election, and so faces a runoff later this month with Aécio Neves. He had trailed badly in the polls, but benefited from a late surge. He's a pro-business candidate who's in favour of free markets, just the sort of thing investors like to hear. The Brazilian stock market rallied strongly as it emerged that he had won over 30% of the vote. So, what happens now? I'm joined by Anna Stupnitska, an economist and emerging markets specialist at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Anna, welcome to the Money Show. Uh, let's try not to second-guess the results of the runoff in a, at the end of this month, because it looks like it's going to be uh, very close. But whoever wins, what sorts of problems is Brazil facing, and why has its economy sort of run out of steam in recent years? Well, Brazil uh, benefited from all the tailwinds that helped uh, all other emerging markets throughout the last decade. And this included the rise of China, the commodity supercycle, the very easy financial conditions globally driven by the US. And also, starting from a lower base 10 or 15 years ago, it was easier to make progress. That also means that there is no incentive structure to reform. And now that these uh, tailwinds are slowly turning into headwinds, all these domestic vulnerabilities are getting exposed. That's why Brazil seems to be running out of steam. And structural reform is absolutely key for the economy to do well going forward. Now, a few years ago, people were saying, well, Brazil isn't just a, a commodity economy. It is, of course, a, a very big producer of commodities, but it has a, a buoyant middle class uh, that's growing very fast and consuming more and more. What's happened to all that talk? It all, it all seems to have disappeared. Well, this is all uh, well and good while uh, uh, the commodity prices are rising. And Brazil really has not managed to diversify from that dependence. And uh, it's very much dependent on what's happening in China. And now China is on a structural slowdown path um, and we expect it to continue. So Brazil really needs to think about other sectors. Okay, and if we look at the Brazilian stock market relative, um, say, to developed stock markets and indeed relative to other emerging markets, how well or, or badly has it performed in recent years? Roughly over the past five years or so, Brazil has underperformed both blocks by about 50% in US dollar terms. Uh, it has underperformed emerging markets by about 20% in local currency terms. And it has underperformed developed markets by about 40% in local currency terms. Yet today it has moderately outperformed uh, somewhere around um, low single digits. And partly this has been driven about this excitement about the potential elections outcome. Whoever wins the, uh, the, the runoff at the end of this month, what do you think are the key things they need to do, that the sort of key self-help measures that the, the country needs to get back on track? 
It's going to be about restoring these previous pillars of macroeconomic management, including inflation-targeted floating exchange rate and fiscal consolidation that's going to be very important for the economy. That's what markets are looking for, um, and hence all the excitement for a potential turnaround story in Brazil. Okay, so if I'm an investor and I'm looking at what looks like a, a fairly lowly valued cheap stock market and, uh, and a potentially a president coming in who's um, going to do all the right things and I want to invest, uh, what are the ways to do that? Should people go for a single country Brazil fund or a, a regional fund or play it safe and go with a sort of global emerging markets product? It's not about getting exposure to the whole of the EM universe. It's about picking those structural growth stories that are going to be more successful. And as I said, structural reform is absolutely crucial here. Looking across the emerging market universe, there are three countries in particular today that have the reform momentum, and they're China, India, and Mexico. So within Latin America, uh, for now it's Mexico, but as I said, Brazil does have a potential to be uh, a more successful story in the longer term, depending on the election outcome. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you. There's lots more on emerging markets in this weekend's FT Money. Merrin Somerset Webb writes about the latest goings-on in China. And John Redwood picks out the tension between Russia and Ukraine as one of the key risks facing all markets at the moment. FT Money is, of course, part of the weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. We're always keen to hear your views. If you're an investor in emerging markets, let us know what you think. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Every so often on Antiques Roadshow, you'll hear a heartwarming tale of how a book bought at a jumble sale or found in an attic turned out to be a rare first edition worth a fortune. Despite the rise of the internet and e-readers like Amazon's Kindle, plenty of us still have shelves groaning under the weight of books. But can you actually make money from collecting them? And if so, how do you go about getting started? James Pickford has been looking into the rarefied world of antiquarian books. James, I guess we should start by saying this is really as much a hobby as it is an investment. Yes, uh, dealers and auctioneers in this uh, business make a point of saying you should buy rare books because you love owning them. Uh, something of cultural or artistic or scientific significance and often something that's a beautiful object in its own right, uh, not because you, th you think you're going to make pots of money out of, of selling it in a few years. Uh, and part of the reason for this is that they are uh, unpredictable as investments. You have to hold on to them for years, uh, sometimes for decades, to see their value rise. Uh, and that value might fluctuate in a highly subjective way according to sort of taste or fashion uh, over the period. And therefore, it's, it's, it's also not a, a liquid market. You can't expect to sell your book at a profit at any time. And indeed, some dealers say that uh, trying to do so any less than around seven years uh, or so after you buy it, uh, that, this, that this goes down rather badly in the book buying community. Nonetheless, the best rare book collections, where, which have been assembled over many years, can achieve high prices at auction or, or can get a very good price from a dealer. Um, there was a big sale of English 
English exploration and discovery books uh, recently by the British collector Franklin Brook Hitching. And this is a library of 1,400 books that uh, this man began collecting in the 1960s. And the sale took over £6 million at Sotheby's, um, and that's if you include the buyer's premium. And this is well above its estimates. Um, and, of course, that's only half of the collection, which will be sold in, in two more tranches over the next few months. So it is possible to do well if you follow some basic rules about what you buy. You mentioned a buyer's premium uh, there. This presumably applies to selling at auction. Uh, am I right in thinking that the, the sort of cost of buying and selling rare books can be quite high compared to, say, the cost of buying a fund? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you have a pot of money and you're just looking to do something with it, then rare books doesn't really come out well uh, on transaction costs uh, when you compare it to investment classes like, say, tracker funds. If you buy a really good rare book at auction, you'll find yourself paying a buyer's premium of as much as 25% at the top houses. Of course, if you buy off a dealer, they will have their margin. But um, because rare books are, are by definition rare, there isn't often a lot of opportunity to compare prices. All those things notwithstanding, there are actually some tax advantages to owning rare books, aren't there? As there are indeed with many other alternative assets. Indeed. You won't pay any VAT, any value-added tax on books. And also, if a book is sold for less than £6,000, you will not pay capital gains tax on it. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that tastes uh, come and go and that what is valuable in the book world is, is a very subjective issue. What is uh, sort of hot in the historical bestseller lists at the moment and, and what is less so? Science uh, and economics are doing rather well at the moment. And uh, experts say that it, what you want is a book that contains the first expression of uh, a scientific or artistic idea. So, for instance, Copernicus's book, in which he revealed the fact that the Earth revolves around the sun and not vice versa. And that was the first time that was mentioned in print. That has sold at Christie's for £2 million a few years ago. But there can be book bubbles. So natural history, for instance, that went through a, a phase of strong buying from the late 80s for about 15 years, but has fallen away a bit now. And of course, when you get into literature, individual authors will, will have their, their trends and so forth. So at the moment, first editions of, of Harry Potter, the first novel, are, are, are highly sought after. But uh, there are other things which have fallen away. So, so for instance, D.H. Lawrence is less fashionable now. Thackeray, the big 19th century uh, authors, are, are less fashionable. And, of course, 100 years ago, uh, rare books in Greek or Latin would have been understood and enjoyed by a much greater number of people than, than today. So uh, Greek and Latin books are, are a whole section of the market that, over time, is gradually disappearing or becoming less sought after. And finally, James, the internet, uh, widely blamed, of course, for destroying uh, the book trade. If you're thinking of getting into um, antiquarian book collecting, oh, the internet's surely a boom. Well, the internet has indeed uh, changed the, the market uh, quite considerably by opening up the information on prices, on the value of a book, on what books contain. So all of the information that auctioneers produce uh, in their catalogues is freely available on the internet. Dealers will often have a great deal of information uh, put out there. You can track the historic um, prices of books 
But some dealers say, well, yes, that's right, but that some of their best stuff may be held off the internet for various reasons. They either want to give it to people that they like or they want to uh, just control its, its release on the market. So you won't necessarily get complete transparency. And in some cases, uh, one or two dealers have said that, that uh, prices have been chased down, particularly in the mid-market, um, by this transparency. So unless you're bidding for the very most sought-after works, you may find uh, that, that prices of, of, of books uh, actually fall because of the influence of the internet. Thanks very much, James. There's more on how to get started with book collecting in this weekend's FT Money. You can also read my views on the party conference season. Be warned, they're not very complimentary. And we look at whether it's been better to invest in actively managed funds or just track an index. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, James, Joe and our special guest Anna Stubnitska at Fidelity Worldwide Investment. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.